All right, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And again, as you flip there, the task is for me to try to talk about the issue of biblical counseling uh, from a very, very practical standpoint. We want to not just talk about theories, but talk about how the theories touch down. And in this session, I've been asked to talk about how to help bitter counselees know how to forgive. So to go back to the uh, complaint that I've been offering, that we're stuck with this word counseling, which can create distance between uh, people and our subject matter, said in the first session last night that uh, really when we talk about counseling, uh, we are talking about change. And this morning, uh, I said, really, when we're talking about counseling, uh, we are really talking about pain. And here, when we think about the issue of helping bitter counselees know how to forgive, it, it helps us to remember that really, when we talk about counseling, we're talking about relationships. We're talking about relationships where there has been a break uh, relationships where there perhaps has been an attempt to be restored, but there is difficulty in that effort at restoration. And you have, with uh, the problem of bitterness, uh, a relational problem where how do I get from this sense of anger and frustration to forgiveness, to restoration? And there's, my goodness, so much we could say about this issue. What I'm going to do is just talk about it in terms of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, uh, understanding that there's more that we could say about it than what's here, uh, but this will give us a jumping off point and uh, uh, helps us to think through this in really biblical and really practical ways. And this is what God's Word says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I mentioned in the previous session uh, a counseling situation where a man was committing adultery with somebody that his wife knew really well. It was a dear friend of hers. Uh, and uh, I told you, uh, initially, I said, well, hey, you've just got to break this off. You need to call her right now. And so he did, under duress. And then at the earliest opportunity, he picked his phone back up and called her and said, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. We can make this work. And... Um, I never had the opportunity. I reached out to that woman and to her husband. I never had the opportunity to have a conversation with her. But I always wondered what her experience of this was. This guy who is uh, calling and saying, I need to break it off with my wife and my pastor sitting here in the room. But now I want you back. And what, my goodness, what's her experience of that? But I never, never got to speak with her. But over time, over a matter of weeks, he began to 
be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he asked the Lord to forgive him for his sin, and he asked his wife to forgive him for his sin. And he began to work on the process, not just of confessing his sin, but of forsaking his sin. But then we had a different problem. The sort of urgent counseling dilemma at the beginning was this dude uh, who everybody he knows is more concerned about his marriage than he is. Well, now we've got him concerned about his marriage, but then there was this problem, and the problem was with his wife. And I want to tell you that uh, this is a, a common problem that I find in marriage counseling. Most of the counseling that I've done uh, in my ministry has been with married couples, and it's been counseling in the aftermath of adultery, counseling in the aftermath of the discovery of a porn problem. That's just, I don't go looking for those. They've come looking for me. And in the providence of God, most of my counseling conversations have been in that kind of environment. And one of the dynamics that I've seen so many times is you'll have one partner who is aware that adultery is happening and is bending over backwards to try to persuade the partner, their other partner that they need to quit doing this. And then about the time that the spouse who has been committing adultery realizes that it's wrong and wants to change, now the other spouse who's been bending over backwards smells blood in the water and they start doing what they wanted to do all along, which is just punish this person for what they did. Well, that's what happened with this couple that I've been talking about. Once he got conviction that what he was doing was wrong and he was willing to do anything to save her marriage, now his wife wanted to get him back. And all of the concern that she had had about her marriage, which had been demonstrating itself in efforts to have more sex and more extreme kinds of sex and begging and pleading and everything in the world, now all that concern got channeled into it's payback time. And that manifested itself in a number of different ways. What, what it would look like on a weekly basis in general terms was we would talk about the requirement on her life, uh, the command of Christ that she has to forgive her husband. We talked about that. Um, we uh, referenced Matthew chapter 18 earlier. We just read about it here, this command in the New Testament to forgive one another. In Ephesians 4.32, that's a command. And she was hearing me talk about these things, and she would say, yes, I agree. I need to do that. And she would say, I forgive you. And then she would go, and through the week, she would punish him in various ways, in a multitude of ways. And um, one particular week, it was really bad. They came in to my office, and uh, his head had been shaved, and he had stitches all on his head. And he had these weird red and white marks on his face that I didn't recognize what they were. It, just, it looked painful, but I didn't know what it was. Well, the story was one day that week she'd got thinking about what he was doing with this woman that she cared so much about 
And she was thinking about how she'd been doing everything she could to try to preserve her marriage. And she'd been thinking about how now I'm supposed to get on board just because now he says he's sorry. Well, he walked in to the kitchen one night, after she, that night after she'd been thinking about that all day, and he said one of the things that I'd been telling him to do in counseling. Hey, babe, what can I do to help? She looked up, screamed at him, and began to beat him over the head with a skillet she was using. And she sliced his head open, busted it open in a few areas, and he had burns on his face and head. I was in the emergency room getting treated for all those things. And fast forward a couple days later, and now they're looking at me. And they both were sitting there crying. She's looking out the window. He's looking at me. And I didn't even have any time to say anything. She looked at me, and with tears running out of her face, she said, running out of her eyes, she said, I can't forgive him. I know I'm supposed to forgive him, but I just can't forgive him. Don't know how. I'm too angry. I'm too hurt. And I don't know what to do. Now, that's just one story. I could tell you so many more. So many more stories of bitterness in the aftermath of a situation like that and in the aftermath of many other situations. It is a common problem in counseling. In so many situations, sometimes I feel like it's the problem. How do I extend forgiveness and pursue reconciliation when this person that I love so much has been so terrible to me? In many ways, I think it's one of the most, it might be the most difficult counseling problem. I love you. I care for you. I give you everything I've got. You betray me, and now I'm supposed to forgive. It's a problem in counseling, but as I referenced earlier, and as I read a moment ago, God commands no bitterness. It's right there. Let all bitterness and all the rest, but let all bitterness be put away from you. Forgive one another. There it is right there. So offensive to so many people. We can talk about the problem of bitterness in a couple of different ways. It becomes a problem in counseling on the one hand when you have people who know they should let go of bitterness and replace it with forgiveness, but they don't want to. And they say, forget it. I'm not on board with this. I'm not doing it. You're on your own and I'm out of here. That's one manifestation of the problem of bitterness. Then on the other hand, you have the manifestation of the problem of bitterness where you know the command that you're supposed to replace bitterness with forgiveness and you want to replace bitterness with forgiveness, but you don't know how. And you're, you're wanting somebody to help you. The, the person in the first category needs to be rebuked. You're not allowed to not want what God wants. 
You have to turn. I get, hey, look, I want to rebuke the other person for what they did, but everybody's got to bear their own load, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5 or 6 or somewhere in there. You've got to bear your own load. You're responsible for your junk, and he's responsible for his junk. He needs to repent for his adultery, but you have to repent for your unwillingness to do what God commands of you. You want him to be faithful, even though he didn't want to. Well, he, he wants you to be forgiving, even though you don't want to. So turnabout's fair play on this. You need to be rebuked. But that's not where this woman is that I'm talking about. She's in, a, she's in that second category. She knows she needs to forgive. She knows she needs to put away bitterness. She wants to do that, but she's sitting here going, how do I do that when I'm so angry, when I'm so hurt? This is not, if you think back to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we talked about the unruly who need admonishment. We talked about the faint-hearted who need encouragement. We didn't talk about the third section, and that's weak people who need help. This woman isn't being unruly in that I don't want this. She's not being a high-handed sinner. She's weak, and she needs help. And... I believed very fundamentally then and still believe now that if I just rebuked her just for this, now she, we did talk about a rebuke for the physical attack, for sure. But when you focus in on this, how do I change? I don't identify her as an unruly person who needs admonishment. I identify her as a weak person who needs help. What do we do with somebody like that when it seems so impossible to do what the Bible says. Well, let's, let's look at this text here. It's, it's interesting. You've got put off and put on, if you know what that language means. This is the way the Bible talks about all the time. It's not a time or two. When the Bible talks about change, it talks about put off and put on. The Bible is not concerned merely that you stop doing bad things. The Bible is concerned... In addition, that you do good things to replace it with. That's what change is. Change is when the bad things not just stop, but it's replaced with good things. We see the put off in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Let it all be put away from you. You're not allowed to hang on to this. Is there anything more shocking that you could say to a person who's been sinned against? You got to let it go. You got to put it away. What? Put it away? I I remember it was a text like this that uh, in my own personal walk with Christ was, uh, I still think it's uh, it's maybe the hardest thing I've ever had to endure in my walk with Christ. Uh, I, I had real bitterness against my mother uh, when I was um, uh, when I was a new Christian, because of the way she treated me growing up, and the way she treated my dad, and the way she treated my brothers, and I was really bitter about it. And it was reading text like this was the first and only time that I'm aware of in my Christian life that I was really offended at God, because I believed as a, a high school student looking back at my young childhood and grade school and being the victim of physical abuse from my mother, I believed that 
bitterness was mine. It belonged to me. My mom earned my bitterness the old-fashioned way. And, and now Jesus is telling me that I can't have it? It's, it's the first and only time in my Christian life that I really believe Jesus was taking something that was mine. And this lady that I'm talking about, and so many others, they can believe the same thing. What do you mean not be bitter? What else would I be when he's done this to me? But here the Bible says you got to let it go. you got to put it away. And, but you don't just stop being bitter. You have to be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Kind and tenderheartedness is what replaces bitterness and malice and clamor and slander. But kind and tenderheartedness isn't the warm fuzzy from a Care Bear movie. I don't even know if that makes any sense to anybody anymore. Anybody know what the Care Bears are? Okay, I'm on thin ice there. It's not too many of you. But, uh, you know, Care Bear, tender heart, whatever. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm too young for the older folks in the room to appreciate it, and I'm too old for the younger folks in the room to appreciate it. So I'm right on a generational bubble here where no one cares what I'm saying. Um, oh well, I'll have to think harder about it for the next time. But um, it's not a warm, fuzzy thing where we're just ushy-gushy and everything's sweetness and light and fluffy like a cloud. The way you are kind and tender-hearted to one another, the text tells us, is by forgiving. The word forgiving, the way it shows up in the text as a participle, explains the way in which you are kind and tenderhearted. So I'm kind and tenderhearted in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, um, and I'm putting off bitterness, not by baking you cookies or just saying, well, hi, how are you? Uh, But I'm kind and tenderhearted by forgiving you, by releasing you from the penalty of your sin in our relationship. I'm not going to, in a relational context, hold you accountable for the penalty of your sin. So the way we're kind and tenderhearted is by forgiving you. I, I let it go. I'm not bitter at you anymore. Now, explaining that doesn't really make things better. Make things worse. Because when you really understand what this kind of release of the penalty is, it just makes you wonder even more, how am I supposed to do that? Well, I think the text gives us a couple of things that are really helpful. And I'm going to talk about four of them, and then we'll be done. And I'm going to try to honor our time here because I don't want to be responsible for a kink in the schedule. Let me talk about four Four realities in this text that help us do what the text commands us to do. First of all, focus on feelings. Now, don't stress out. Some of you might be tempted to stress at this point. Just take a deep breath. It's all right. Everything's going to be okay. Um, 
focus on feelings. Here's what I mean. The number one objection that I have heard in counseling against this call to forgiveness uh, comes in the words of that woman I referenced at the very beginning. You remember what she said? I can't forgive him. I'm too angry. You hear that? She's not just describing what she's going to do and what she's not going to do. She is giving a rationale. And the rationale for what she is not going to do, namely forgive her adulterous husband, the rationale is, I feel angry. You remember that country music song, I Just Want to Be Mad for a While? Uh, That was supposed to be a funny song. I couldn't enjoy it because I've heard that so many times in counseling. I just can't think it's funny. Uh, I just want to be angry. Too angry. I'm too hurt. Her rationale for falling short of this call to forgive is I feel angry and I feel hurt. So because I feel that way, I won't do it. Now, you'll hear people say sometimes, well, you biblical counselors, you don't care about feelings very much, do you? That's not true. We care a lot about feelings. I want to know everything about how you're feeling, actually. And I don't want to blow it off at all. I can't even help you until I know how you feel. So please tell me how you feel. It's not that I don't care about your feelings. It's just that feelings aren't authoritative. Uh, Feelings are good when they line up with the truth of the Word of God. They're bad when they disagree with the truth of the Word of God, but I want to know what they are regardless, because I need to know where you are and how you're feeling, how you're emoting is a significant part of me knowing how you are. So it's very important. It's just not always right how you're feeling. So because I care about feelings, I want to say focus on the feelings. Let's, so let's listen to what this woman is saying. She's saying, I'm too angry and I'm too hurt to forgive. But when we focus on that, we have to compare it with what the Bible says here. And the Bible says to people who have been embittered, who have been wrathful, angry, full of clamor and slander, and who are malicious, the Bible says to all of those people, you, me, everybody in Ephesus, let it all be put away from you. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul does not say... You know what, before I can say this, I really need to hear where everybody's coming from. Because maybe you have a situation that wouldn't apply here. But he doesn't say that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he can say to everybody, irrespective of their situation, let it go. He gives, that is to say, a command. Here's why that's good news. It's good news to get a command to forgive when you feel embittered. And the reason that's good news is because it means you can do it even if you don't feel like it. Now, we live this way all the time. Embittered people forget that we live this way all the time, but we live this way all the time. I just talked with my wife. Um, She, right now, in Jacksonville, Florida, has a very clear expectation that our three kids are going to be cleaning their rooms. But not one of them feels like it. 
and she did not conduct a poll. She just, you just need to go do it. Um, the government expects you to pay your taxes. And they've never asked us if we feel like it. They just expect you to do it. This woman that I've been talking about, she expected her husband to be faithful, even though he didn't feel like it. This is good news. It's good news that you can do a thing even when you don't feel like doing it. Now, how that works out is something we'll have to talk about in a little bit. But we can say to people, hey, look, I got good news for you. You feel angry, but that doesn't mean you can't release your husband from the consequences of a sin in your relationship. You feel sad, but that doesn't mean you have to hang on to this till the day you're all dead. You can let this go. Second thing we can say to help. First, focus on feelings. Second, focus on the sin. Focus on sin. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is a nuclear weapon launched right into the very center of your heart. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's saying, you know, embittered people, they love to focus on the sin that was committed against them, but forgiven people focus on the sins they've committed. When I was here three years ago, I preached on Matthew 18, I believe, if my notes are correct. Uh, And we talked about the problem of the unforgiving servant. And uh, if you were there or you remember that text, you remember that there is a man who owes, he's a servant to a king, and he owes the king a massive debt. It's a lifetime of money that he could never pay. And the king forgives him. But then this now forgiven servant goes to another servant that owes him a couple of days worth of wages. And he starts to choke him. And he says, pay what you owe. And when the king heard that he had done that, he called him a wicked servant. And he placed him in debtor's prison until he should pay the last penny. And Jesus, at the end, in verse 34, I think, he says, So also will my heavenly Father do to you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. And he asks the question, What was the problem with the unforgiving servant? What was his problem? And the problem was, he was only thinking about what he was owed. And he was not thinking about how much he'd been forgiven. It's a powerful principle. And it offends people. 
but I just work here. In fact, I don't even work here. I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow, so I'll say this and run to the airport. But here it is. You ready? You show me an unforgiving person who's holding on to bitterness, and I will show you an arrogant person with no room in their heart to consider all they've been forgiven, but can only think about what's been done to them. The principle here is you've got to think about your sin. There are a few things that will help you let go of bitterness quicker than remembering that you are a big old sinner too. And that gets to the third thing. First, focus on feelings. Second, focus on sin. Three, focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. We see this in verse 32 as well. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ forgives it all. And Jesus Christ has never looked at you and said... I just want to be mad for a while. What if he did that? What if, what if Jesus treated us the way embittered people treat those they need to forgive? I will never forgive you. I'm too angry. I'm too hurt. How could I forgive you what you've done to me? The lesson here, it also goes back to Matthew 18 is embittered people are never in a gazillion years asked to forgive more than they've been forgiven. From now till the end of time, embittered people will always be forgiven more than they could ever forgive somebody else. That is to say, we always sin against Jesus Christ more than anybody could ever sin against us. Because every single sin we ever commit is always with respect to God. Not every single sin everybody else commits is with respect to us. People can do horrible things to us. But nobody has ever sinned against us every day, all day long. But we sin against God every day, all day long. And Jesus says, it's forgiven. When you realize that you are submerged in an ocean of forgiveness, you can spare a few cupfuls of forgiveness for other people. This is a really practical strategy. When Paul says, forgive one another as God and Christ forgive you, he's giving you a strategy. He's giving you the strategy of look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look, you're, you're sitting there bittered, embittered. Don't be embittered. Think about how much you've been forgiven. Think about your sin and think about Jesus. Look at him. 
Look at what he's done. And you forgive others the way you've been forgiven. How have we been forgiven? There's a lot we could say about this, actually, but uh, we won't talk about everything. Let's look at... um, Let's look at two passages. We could look at a bunch. Let's look at two. Psalms. Psalm 103, verse 12. Psalm 103, verse 12. Well, in fact, we'll get a little bit of context by skipping up to verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How does that steadfast love show up? Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You can't get any further away from east than west. It's opposite. East is on one side of the universe. West is on the opposite end of the universe. They are opposites. They are oppositely far from one another. What the Bible is saying is that your sin is removed from you as far away as it's possible to be. As far as east is from west, in the mind of God, so far is your sin removed from you. Another text, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Verses 33 and 34. We'll uh, get a little context uh, by backing up to verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, this is an utterly shocking statement. The sovereign God who is omniscient, he knows everything past, present, and future, says, I am not going to remember your sin anymore. Now, he doesn't mean, God doesn't, that he's going to get some kind of divine amnesia. What he means is, I'm not going to remember your sin against you anymore. He, he, he still has access to it in his mind, 
but he doesn't remember it against them. He doesn't hold it over them anymore. It's as far as the east is from the west. Here's what this means. Again, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. How does he do that? Because Jesus comes in the new covenant and pays for it. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus Christ. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. This is really practical. We look to Jesus and we see that through Jesus, my sins are taken away from me. And so when God looks at me, he sees a precious son, not a guilty sinner. This is the way we have to forgive. I have to forgive you the same way. That wife that I've been talking about has to forgive her husband that same way. She has to look at him and not remember the sin against him anymore. She has to look at him and see him and his sin on opposite ends of the universe. They don't go together anymore. Now this takes work. Now, there's a whole other talk in here. Just on this point right here, how do you do that? Well, it involves taking your thoughts captive and being transformed by the renewal of your mind and having a strategy in place that you can work so that when I start thinking, oh man, he did that. And they went to a hotel and they, no, I said I would forgive you. And when I said I would forgive you, I moved your sin to the east and you're over here on the west. I don't remember your sins against you anymore. Lord, help me to think about Jesus and how Jesus forgave me. Help me to think about Jesus and how he makes me right before you and help me to do the same thing for my husband. That's a whole other topic for a whole other day. But when you focus on Christ and you see how he's forgiven you, there's no room for bitterness in your heart. And then finally, focus on hope. Focus on hope. When you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, we've been paying attention to verses 31 and 32, but we started reading in verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This husband in the marriage I've been talking about, he took his turn to destroy his marriage. But as they sat there in my office that day, now she was taking her turn to destroy their marriage. They had different tactics. They were using different weapons, but they were each thinking about destruction, and they were each grieving the Holy Spirit. Each of them had done something that God commands them not to do. And so we get this reminder that, hey, you're both sinners. Everybody's a sinner. The person who sinned against you is a sinner, and you're a sinner when you don't forgive them. But then we get this hope. The Holy Spirit of God, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. This, see, embittered people see clearly. They see clearly one thing, though. Just one thing. And what they see clearly is the offense that was committed against them. They need no eyeglasses for that. But they're blind to whole other realities. They're not looking at the sins they have committed. 
They're not looking at the sin they are committing by disobeying the word of God every bit as much as the disobedience that led to them being embittered. And what this text really focuses on, they're short-sighted. They see clearly for a few days, for a few weeks. But their long vision, they don't have it. And what the Apostle Paul does in reminding us of the day of redemption is he reminds us that our existence is very long. It never ends. We will live forever to our everlasting joy or to our everlasting shame. We will live forever. And when you think about living forever into the day of redemption, these few days of experiencing the sins that get committed against us and the bitterness we hold on to like it's a prized possession, it's so short. It's it's like a breath vapor. You breathe out and you see it and it's gone. It doesn't happen in Florida, but it happened here this morning. It's there, but then it's gone. And this thing that's passing away, we make seem like it's such a big deal. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it's going to seem like a nanosecond. We're so short-sighted. The Apostle Paul will say, I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present world aren't even worth comparing to the joy that awaits us. We have to focus and help our folks focus on hope. This is so short, and you're acting like it's long. And you need to open up your eyes and see that the Spirit of God, who comes to you from the Father and the Son... You're not just saved by Jesus. You are sealed by the Spirit. And you have an eternity of joy waiting for you. All of a sudden, when you think about the day of redemption, when every wrong is righted and every right is rewarded, all of a sudden it doesn't seem like such a hot idea to hold on to a little bit of bitterness. We can let it go. Bitterness is a problem in your life, it's a problem in my life, it's a problem in the lives of those God gives us to help. But God commands that we would put it away and replace it with forgiveness. And in the same breath that he tells us to put it away, he also reminds us of how to fight to do that. To focus on our feelings and bring our feelings in alignment with the commands of God. To focus on our own sin and not so much what others have done to us, to focus on Jesus Christ and remember that through Him and by His grace, we are forgiven of every sin, including our sin of failing to forgive. And to focus that as we trust in Him, we'll dwell with Him forever. And the bitterness that seems so, so important now will seem so irrelevant then. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help. We, um, we hear these commands and we see these strategies and we realize that ultimately without a Savior, we can't do it. 
were sunk. And so we thank you that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is involved in both sides of the put off and put on. Jesus forgives us for our failure. And Jesus empowers our obedience. And so because he is alive, teach us that we can forgive. Because he is alive, help us to show those you give us to help that they can forgive as well. And Father, we pray that that would happen so that people would have some faint glimpse of the salvation that Jesus offers. And we pray it in his name. Amen.